Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. It's another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. <laughs> I am your host, as always, Jason A. Meiske. Uh, you know what? Actually, let me scratch that. I am your host for now. <laughs> Today is a very special episode. Uh, as you probably saw by the name of this one, this is this is my episode. Yay! So for right now, it's me. You get me on here talking to you for a few more minutes. Uh, but then after this, I hand it over to my family. <laughs> Yeah, my uh, my daughters, Annie and Kaylee Meiske, they are the ones taking over the show to interview me. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun. Uh, I had a really good time. And they did. They do a really great job of asking me questions that they came up with. I, I didn't have any get I didn't get to have any say in it. So this is this is a fun episode ahead. And I, I really hope you enjoy it. So. Uh, but let's go ahead and get a couple things, our, our usual week-to-week thank yous. Podcastgarden.com is our host site for the show. If you are interested in starting your own podcast, make sure you go there. You can fill out some information, upload your recording, and boom, you are on your way. You've got yourself a show. Uh, you can start for free. If you are also interested in finding other shows, they have a whole slew of other types of shows. There's a variety available to you. You can search through and find what you might like, what you might be interested in, and uh, chances are you're going to find it on there. Everything from faith-based shows up to sci-fi and people just talking about whatever strikes their fancy. So that's over at podcastgarden.com. Also want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor, U Store All of Warrensburg, Missouri. U-Store-All is the premium place in the Warrensburg area for climate control and conventional storage, self-storage. They are a fully fenced-in facility with more than 40 cameras recording 24 hours a day. That is all backed up to a DVR, so the manager was telling me that they have more than a, you know, usually they have about a couple of months worth of footage at any point, so they always know if there's any hijinks going on, you know, if somebody's done something that they shouldn't have if somebody got in that shouldn't have been in. And you know what was fascinating? I was talking to them. They've been in business this summer. will be 41 years. 41 years now that they've been in business. And in that time, they've only ever had one incident. And uh, that person was in custody within 24 hours. So that's a that's an impressive track record, if you ask me. So, you know, if you want to store your items somewhere and then <laughs> have them there, you know, they're still in your unit when you come back, make sure you check out U-Store-All of Warrensburg and look at their website, ustoreall.net. That is the letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L dot net. It's been a couple episodes since I've talked about rating and reviewing. It's not just for podcasts. It's not just for your favorite shows on uh, other places, but it's also for books. If you hear a book on the show that you went out and you picked one up, make sure that you leave a review for it. You know, give it a give it a rating, give it a, a review, tell the author what you thought of it. You know, and it, and it really it, it doesn't matter if it's if it's a great review, if it's an okay review. You know, if it's five stars, four stars, three stars, that kind of information informs the author. Or if it's a show that you're listening to, it informs the people who who make that show, and informs them of who's listening. Who's reading? You know, what did they enjoy? What did they not? 
and uh, you know it, it's it's always useful information. So make sure that you're going out wherever it is you are. If you've read a book, make sure you rate it on on Amazon or Goodreads, wherever it is you're listening to, or all of the all the above, wherever it is you've you can. Uh, that's always very helpful. If it's a show, make sure you go to iTunes, Google, Stitcher, you know whatever it is. Make sure you go in there, leave a star review, you know, click on the button, uh, rate it, and uh, yeah, you know, it's it's just a good thing. It really helps out uh, everybody. So, like I said, today is today is my episode. <laughs> this is it was a lot of fun. My book Nine Mile Bridge came out last week. Came out on Friday. I tried really hard to get it out on Thursday and just couldn't quite make it. I was up till, oh gosh, I was up till like 1.30 in the morning, Thursday night, Friday morning, and then back up again 6 a.m. the next morning trying to fix the files and the the cover art was was askew on it, so it wasn't quite lined up. But, uh, you know, I learned a lot and I've learned learned a lot about what you shouldn't do as well. (laughs) So... But, uh, you know, so far, the, the book's had a really great response, and I'm just enjoying the published author life now, and it's really great feeling to have that out there, to have people responding to it as they are, and this is a unique experience, having the tables turned and being interviewed for my own show. <laughs> my, uh, my daughters did a really great job putting together information that not only came up with their own questions, which I was not informed of, but they also checked with uh, my sons and my wife, and they, they pulled the questions together to see what what kind of questions people may have for me, what uh, that might be interesting, and yeah, as you can see, we had a lot of fun. Yeah, this was this is a good episode, I think, and I really hope you enjoy it, and you know, I think I'm going to go ahead and get out of the way, and I'll hand the show over to my daughters, Annie and Kaylee Meiske. This is Kaylee and my sister Annie. Hi. And today we're the hosts doing an interview of our dad. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, happy to be here. <laughs> Want to give us your name? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, my name is Jason Meiske and I'm a thriller author. <laughs> this, is, this is a little awkward being on this side of it. Uh, first time author. Uh, my first book just came out this past week. Yeah, I'm a father of four, as you all know, the grandfather of four, and um, yeah, married my high school sweetheart. Uh, we've been married for 21 years now. Run a podcast and uh, looking forward to uh, putting out another book as soon as I can. I asked you to introduce yourself, not talk about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Not for your life story. <laughs> so, we have some questions for you. I'm sure other people would like to know. Annie, would you like to start off any of your questions? I understand that you've been working on your first book for eight years, and it's finally out. Mm-hmm. Which, congratulations, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Would you have any advice for other aspiring authors that haven't started, want to start, or have, but like you, but maybe it's been years since? Mm. Okay. Uh, that's, that's actually a really great question. And I think it's something a lot of authors struggle with, especially first-time authors um, like myself. 
yeah, it, it uh, I, I started it in 2010, and so I'm, I'm this year would have been eight years. Uh, it was late 2010, so you know, you know, seven plus. And when I first started, I didn't know a whole lot about what really I was doing, other than trying to put the story down. And I did a lot of rewriting and rewriting and rewriting the stuff that I was excited about, and. I think a lot of authors do that. They write down the things that they're excited about. They, they write those chapters. And that's what I was working on uh, repeatedly. And it took me years before I finally started learning more about the craft. Uh, I got in with writing groups and learned more about what I should be doing, um, how to get better at it. And the, the writing groups really encouraged me. Um, I listened to a lot of podcasts to learn more about what I should be doing as well. And uh, finally, it was uh, the uh, writing group I was in convinced me to try NaNoWriMo. And I looked into that, and uh, it, it intrigued me, the idea of trying to write a novel in 30 days. And at first, I wasn't going to do it because yeah, I thought, well, I don't want to come up with something new. But then I looked at what I had, and I essentially had you know, three chapters, more or less, so I decided, all right, I'm going to give that a shot. And that's what I did was I just took those three chapters as a launch point and went from there. And what I learned, what benefited me most was to just keep writing. I, I would tend to think and rethink and edit as I went. And what I found was that was the surefire way to get nothing done. If I just unlocked the creative part of my brain and I just went along with it and started writing, then I was getting a lot done. Yeah, right at the end of November, I, I finished the first draft of Nine Mile Bridge. And that was something that uh, was really great. It was a good feeling. And it's something I've made sure to tell other authors as well that, you know, you don't, don't give up. Uh, you dig down, you find ways, you know, find what's working. If you've been working on the same story for a long time and you're not really getting anywhere, then maybe you need to take a look at what is it you're doing and uh, is that really working and maybe try something different. Um, that's what worked for me. And Wow, that's a lot of work in <clears throat> eight years. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was yep. a long time. Yep. And, and I should say that uh, even then, NaNoWriMo, that was two years ago that I did that. So it was... Uh, Still another uh, couple of years of, of editing and changing things out. Besides the writing, the editing is what drives a lot of people away, I think. Yeah, yeah. and But I think editing, is, it, it turns into a lot of fun as you go, um, getting into it and shaping the story. Now, you've always been kind of a natural storyteller. You've always told lots of stories, and you've always been really good at it. Why did you decide Nine Mile Bridge would be your first book? Mm, thank you. Uh, well, I, yeah, like you said, I'd always thought of a lot of different stories. Um, I'd always dreamt about what would be my first book. Um, I had a lot of ideas of what I wanted to write, but I couldn't settle on which one was was going to be the right thing. Like I couldn't see the whole story, if that makes sense. Like I, I had a, a a glimmer of an idea, but I couldn't see the whole story in my head. And so back in 2010, uh, when uh, somebody got a hold of me and had told me about Nine Mile Bridge, which is a, a, an actual, was, was an actual place 
from uh, my teenage years that I would go to, and it was a supposed haunted area. Uh, when I heard that that place had been renovated and the, the bridge had been torn down and that uh, people still told, told those stories, that just triggered something in me. I all of a sudden, I, I just, you know, it, it like it awoken the writer within me. And I knew what I was going to do, what uh, I wanted the story to be about, how I could update it for today's times. And I was writing faster than I could think um, a lot of times. And, you know, like I said, I, I had those three chapters, but like I wrote those first three chapters, I think, in, in my first day, uh, writing it down. And, uh, and then I, ha I have a file full, like an actual handwritten file full of notes of what I wanted to do throughout the story. And, and it changed a lot since then, but that was the one that I took that inspiration uh, for an old story and, um, and just ran with it. And uh, that was the first time I, I could really see the whole picture in my head. But uh, yeah, that's, that's where I, uh, that's where I was inspired to do that. Have you always wanted to be a writer? I have. Yeah. Um, it's been one of those things that, I mean, it, it always wanted to write. I always wrote stories growing up. I remember doing little little books that I would staple the pictures together and stuff. And, you know, I, I love doing those kinds of things and creating uh, stories that I would tell. And, um, and then writing stories about my friends and I being elite fighting groups growing up and um, going on from there. And then, of course, that went into my adult years, having uh, whenever I had children and I got to tell stories to, to them. You know, I love creating different ideas and different stories and uh, sometimes scaring <laughs> scaring you guys mm -hmm. and sometimes just telling something wild and fantastic. So, yeah, I, I think I've always wanted to be a writer. I just never knew how I would go about it. And uh, that's where uh, I'm fortunate. You know, we're fortunate to be in these days where anybody can be and uh, you can publish on your own. Is there anything you wish you had known back when you started to save yourself all the time, blood, sweat, and tears? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I, w I wish I could have. Uh, I, I would probably go back and tell myself to, uh, you know, not to worry so much about it. Maybe um, just dive in, learn more about the craft, learn more about storytelling and you know, how to shape a story, how to put one together, uh, what it takes. Um, ironically, one of the things that helped me along the way was I took a film class and I, I've had a, a writing education and I have a degree, but, uh, some of that, a lot of that was like the mechanics and th those type of things, uh, which a lot of it I've forgotten since then. But the film class spoke to me. I think I'm a visual writer, a visual reader. And so taking the film class taught me all about uh, scenes and storytelling uh, from, a, from that visual point. And I learned a lot from that. And so I think I would have told myself a long time ago to uh, maybe look into more about um, you know, shaping a story and, and just do it is the main thing. Take the time and go ahead and be doing it. Um, it's hard to say sometimes that, you know, if you went back and you changed something, what would that do today? Would you have learned the same lessons? Um, 
and would you be the same person? Would I write the same, the story the same way I did today? And it's hard to say, but yeah, it, it would be sure would be nice if I had been writing, you know, if I'd written this story 10 years ago, so I, I wonder, that's interesting. It makes me wonder what the story might've been 10 years ago, as opposed to uh, today. What was your biggest struggle writing the story? Like what kept on yeah. hanging you up? Yeah, what kept hanging you up? That's uh, <laughs> uh, my biggest hang up, you know, is probably just myself. Um, I, I did spend a long time worrying about, you know, what are people going to think? Mm-hmm. Um, because self-doubt. Yeah, self-doubts. Um, are people going to laugh about it? You know, will they like it? Will they not like it? Um, <clears throat> you know, because like I said, I, I have somewhat of an education and a degree in writing, but it was in it was in children's writing, and so I was taking that and expanding on it with uh, this story. And one of the things, it it would be easy to look back and say, well, I just didn't have the time because uh, I was really busy and so on. But that's not really true. Um, I, you all remember, I mean, I used to wake up, I'd watch TV, uh, I'd play some video games, that's do fun. different things, you know, come home and maybe go fishing for a while. Um, but these last two years, I've I've been much more serious about my writing. I've taken it as a job because uh, I want to make this a serious career and I want it to be a serious job because it is. You know, and if, if you believe in something and you believe in yourself and you want to work hard for something, then you've got to put in that work. And that was something I, maybe that's what was my biggest hang up was never really believing in myself to believe I was going to do it. Once I cut out the extracurricular stuff, um, you know, so now I'd wake up early and instead of playing a video game or watching TV, I open up the laptop here at the dinner table and I would start writing. Um, when I'd come home in the evening, if everybody's watching something that I didn't want to watch or if maybe you guys were at the park or doing something different, you know, I could open up my laptop or go somewhere else and do a little bit of writing I think just uh, maybe that was that was the hang-up was uh, maybe I wasn't uh, ready to commit. Finding the, the motivation. Yeah, yeah, finding that motivation. So what makes you the most excited now that it's published? Like, what are your Ooh. big goals? Uh, right off the bat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I hope it sells. Uh, right off the bat, my what I'm most excited about is that it's done and that... Um, that I get to move on to my next story. Um, you know, I've started a few stories in between. The last edited draft that I did of it back in November, I I stopped and sent it off to a uh, an editor friend to look it over. And during that time, I started on another story. But yeah, I mean, without getting too too deep into it, I think that's what I'm most excited about is getting on to the next story. I like marketing. I like the... Uh, you know, advertising and coming up with ways to promote the book. Um, it's going to be fun going to going places and signing copies, um, that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to doing it all over again. That fed into my next question is if you're working on anything new since Nine Mile is finished. I am. Um, the The next story, I've actually got two different stories. I started one. Um, well, about a year and a half ago, I started a story, and I have all my notes, and 
I think that's going to become a series. And uh, it's going to be a little bit more on the serious side. It's about a, a young man um, in the future, about 15, 20 years in the future from now. A uh, young man who's about to turn 18. And when he turns 18, he takes over control of his father's tech empire. Um, but in the couple weeks before that happens, um, things start happening um, around him. There's an attempt on his life. And uh, the biggest um, uh, thing is that uh, his father, who's been dead since before he was born, sends him a message. Or he gets a message from his father. Ooh. So that that's a, that's a series that I'm looking forward to getting into. But my next one, the one that I, I've already started on, is uh, called the Bandit series, and that is a alien invasion uh, story that's going to be a little more uh, pulp and more fun, really, than anything. I don't think they'll be anywhere near the length of what Nine Mile Bridge is. But uh, these will be shorter stories and just a lot of fun. Um, it takes place in, or starts in 1989 with an alien invasion. And this uh, 13-year-old boy and his brother, they find a place to hide. And uh, he's been in hiding for five years. And, you know, as a 13-year-old might do to stay in hiding and to uh, entertain himself, he's been collecting video games and movies and stuff to uh, entertain himself. And now he's coming out and doing what he can to save the world. And uh, he looks at himself kind of as a Conan the Barbarian Highlander kind of guy, just full of 80s references. And, you know, he considers himself kind of a, you know, Schwarzenegger or Stallone sort of action hero that he can come out and start doing these things. And, you know, he's going to learn that that's not the, quite the case um but it's gonna be a it's gonna be kind of tongue-in-cheek and uh it, it's gonna be a lot of fun i'm really looking forward to to doing that i've got uh several chapters into that and uh, i've got some pretty cool aliens and some other aliens uh, from other worlds that are in here as well and yeah it's it's gonna be fun i'm looking forward to that yeah, so we can look forward to hearing a lot more from you yeah so you have two other jobs would mm-hmm. and since writing is what you've always wanted to do, do you find yourself always plotting or in your head constantly thinking about what you're gonna do next with your books and <laughs> how you're gonna rewrite things? Characters? Oh, yeah, this... do you steal? Yeah, this is. <laughs> is this Devin's questions? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is Devin's question. Devin's you question. Start. <laughs> okay. Our older brother. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's just the writer's mind. Everything around you could be an influence. Everything that's happening can strike that that bit of uh, lightning inside you. Um, you know, whether you're standing in in line at at the gas station or at the theater, uh, whether you're pumping gas. Um, you know, we're. I think uh, the writer's mind. We're always looking around. We're always seeing things happen and. Uh, our mind just whirs in, you know, it starts spinning stories of, you know, ah, yep, that red car that just went by. I think I saw them earlier. Yep, they must be on a mission. Uh, I work at this place, and uh, there's these two customers that come in on a on a regular basis, and one comes in on one side of the, of the place, and another one comes in and stays at another side of the place, 
And I find myself thinking about them that, you know, what if one guy is an assassin and the other guy is his contact and they come here and this is where they're, this is where they meet to talk. They, they sit on other side, the other side of the place. So they're not really together, but they're communicating in some way to discuss plans and you know, he's getting his assignment of who he's got to kill and stuff like that. You know, things like that cross my mind, uh, watching the people around you. And yeah, I, I think, uh, it's just part of, uh, like I said, I think it's just part of the writer's mind that uh, we're always thinking of things like that. So do you like narrate what you're doing? Jason just picked up the pen on the floor and now he's going to write this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't really narrate my life like that. Um, I, I guess when I, if I'm fishing, uh, I do kind he of... Cast the pole. Yeah. Reels it as quickly as he can. Uh, yeah, I, I find myself... <laughs> I, I, I kind of picture myself... Uh, you know, being on camera and uh, all of a sudden, you know, I'll hook that big fish and, oh, son, look at there. I got a big one now. And, you know, different things like that. Or maybe if I'm, maybe if I'm working out, you know, and it's easy to get wrapped up in the moment. So, but yeah. <laughs> well, I think we have just one more question for you. Where can we find you? Where can we get your book? Where can we learn more? Oh, okay. Uh, well, the... Right now, the ebook is available on Amazon. You can order that for the Kindle. Uh, it's on Kindle Unlimited, so it's free to borrow. Uh, the paperback will be coming out in a couple of weeks. Uh, doing a few tweaks on the cover so that when the image is blown up, it, it doesn't look. Uh, it, it'll look really nice. I am like I said. I have a profile on Amazon. I have a profile now. My author profile on Goodreads. Uh, I have a. Facebook page, which is author Jason A. Meiske, that uh, I do post on there pretty regularly, especially lately uh, with the release of that book. I've been uh, posting up there quite a bit. And I do a part-time blog. Um, I used to blog a lot, but I haven't recently with the onset of the podcast. But uh, I did get back in there. I've actually got uh, two blogs. I've been in the midst of writing lately that I need to get posted here soon. And that is... Uh, that's on WordPress. It's uh, Jason A. Meiske or Daydreams of the Writing Fisherman. And then, of course, here on the Sample Chapter <laughs> Podcast. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. And you can also learn more information. I'm going to be doing an interview with my dad, Jason, on my YouTube channel, uh, Kaylee Joy. Whenever he gets his paperback books, I'm hoping to be able to do a giveaway and possibly some other little things to go along with it, like bookmarks and mm-hmm. things like that. So you can go and see there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So I'll make sure to uh, share that on uh, my author page. And then, uh, of course, as that uh, gets closer, I'll put that up on the uh, on the podcast as well. So, yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And uh I'm I'm glad to be here today. <laughs> <laughs> very thrilled, very happy for you, Dad. We've watched you go through this whole process. It's very proud. Very uh, proud. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, this is this has been special. This is really cool to be. Yeah, it's one thing to be interviewed by a friend or uh, another podcaster, author, people I've come to know, but uh, this is a totally different. And very special experience to be interviewed by uh, by my family. 
And uh, I really appreciate that, uh, that you girls took the time to do this. Thank you very much. It's even more fun that I know everything that they don't. <laughs> as far as the story, as far as the story. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen chapters they'll never even hear of ah. <laughs> oh yeah they, they've been cut out yep <laughs> that's right, yeah. All right deleted well, scenes without further ado I think we're gonna listen to his chapter now yeah <laughs> <laughs> alright thank All right. you uh, yeah I'm, yeah I'm gonna be reading the <clears throat> the first chapter, this used to be a prologue, uh, but it's the first chapter for Nine Mile Bridge. Uh, it takes place in uh, 1988, and then it jumps forward to present time. Uh, so that's what I'll be reading. And uh, All right, let's all right. look forward to hearing right. it. Kaylee and I are going to come in with our ice cream and listen. <laughs> all right, thanks a lot. <laughs> chapter 1. Fall, 1988. The Guns N' Roses anthem of Paradise City thundered from a crimson-colored 1982 Dodge Charger hatchback as it raced along the lonely, moonlit gravel road. Squeezed into the back seat, Bruce bounced his black mean mullet in rhythm along with the song in true headbanger style. The crescendo was building towards the end of the song. Faster! Faster! He was unable to keep up with the lyrics at this point, but listened in amazement while Chad, his musically inclined buddy, squished between himself and his other best friend Todd, sang it effortlessly. Chad's naturally curly brunette, shoulder-length tresses flew about as he sang. Bruce found it necessary to keep headbanging in order to avoid getting whipped by Chad's hair, but Todd's blonde crew cut offered no protection. The neck-cramping moves came to an end along with the song and the music was turned down. A combination of the music and his excitement about their destination had Bruce beaming. From the front passenger seat, another teenage boy, Greg Rawson, turned around to face them. His medium-length auburn hair clung to his face. Greg and the driver, Billy Brantley, were seniors in their high school. Bruce and his friends, being only sophomores themselves, only knew of the older boys, and if not for Chad working with Greg at Kentucky Fried Chicken, they wouldn't be hanging out tonight. Pretty freaking sweet, right? Greg pointed to Billy's sound system. Bitchin', man, Bruce responded, still grinning. Chad said you had a rad new stereo, but man, that thing is hardcore. Thanks, Billy spoke, looking into the rearview mirror at them. So tell me, man, you mugs really haven't heard of the Nine Mile Bridge? No, Bruce shook his head and then nodded towards Chad. At least not until earlier when Chad called, inviting Todd and me to come along. He said it's a haunted bridge, right? Billy nodded in response and glanced quickly at Greg. Bruce thought he saw them exchange a quick smile, but it was hard to tell by the dim-lit light coming through the windshield. Greg snickered through his nose. Hell yeah, man. The whole fucking area is haunted. The bridge and then up the hill from it is a graveyard and old church, and they're both fucking haunted too. Sounds awesome, man. Bruce feigned genuine excitement, hoping they wouldn't notice. His smile was real, though. He couldn't help it due to Greg's profound use of the English language. He looked at Todd, who rolled his eyes, having apparently caught Bruce's tone, and shared his sentiment. He remembered their conversation earlier, when Chad had called, and the suspicions they had. Just because Chad had been working with Greg for the past few weeks didn't convince Bruce that these seniors didn't have a prank planned for them. A haunted bridge way out in the country? Gnarly. Chad chimed in, excited. Tell them what you told me about the place. I don't think I explained it very well. 
Greg turned further in the seat to face them, practically sitting on his knees. A dip in the gravel road bounced the car, sending him into the roof, hitting his head. Ow! He complained, throwing his elbow into Billy, who grunted a laugh. Rubbing his head, the pout which had been on his lips spread into a toothy grin as he began weaving his tail. He told them how the decrepit bridge was rumored to have been around since the Civil War, and that desperate Confederate soldiers had kidnapped babies of northern families to toss into the river below to keep them from growing up to one day fight them. What? Todd's baritone voice interrupted, scoffing. Come on, man! No way! Greg stammered, but Billy chimed in from his driver's seat. Yeah, I don't know what about the soldier babies either, man. I heard it was slave babies. The people who owned this land back then were cruel-ass slave owners who regularly tortured their slaves. Whenever one got pregnant and had a child, it was taken away to the bridge and tossed over. Yeah, yeah, Greg's excitement returned. Maybe that's what it was, slave babies. You know, they don't want more mouths to feed, so Greg held his hand out high, then wiggled his fingers for apparent added effect. He slowly lowered it in a falling arc at Bruce's feet, accompanied by a falling whistle sound. Bruce's face soured and retracted his foot away from the make-believe child. Greg allowed the silence to hang in the air for effect. The only other sound was that of the gravel road crunching beneath them. Todd cleared his throat, breaking the silence. <clears throat> so, do we see these babies at the bridge or what? Greg gave a rogue smile. Not exactly. See, what you do is you sit on the edge of the bridge and dangle your legs, barefoot with your pant legs rolled up. He spoke that last part slowly, trying to sound creepy. Ever the showman, Bruce thought. You might hear them crying below, Greg continued, and that's when you can feel their little baby ghost hands trying to claw their way back up out of the river to escape their purgatory. Purgatory, Bruce thought, impressed Greg would know such a word. He hoped his single raised eyebrow looked curious and not mocking. Greg didn't seem to notice and pressed on. Once these little devils have, have climbed your legs to the bridge, they keep climbing, trying to get as far away from the river as they can. But wait, Bruce questioned. If you can only feel them, not see them, how do you know they're still moving about? Billy spoke up again. You'll know because they leave their baby handprints on your vehicle as evidence. Creepy, right? Chad piped, a fixed grin on his face and his eyes wide with excitement. Bruce nodded, but was unimpressed. So far, things sounded lame to him, but he didn't let on. Yeah, creepy. So, what else will we see? Greg excitedly told them about the road on the other side of the bridge, how it S-curves up a steep hill and is lined with elm and bur oak trees, which, according to legend, was once decorated with the hanging bodies of slaves as a warning to others of what happened when they tried to escape. At the top of the hill, the road dead ends at the small gravel parking lot of a church, with the ancient graveyard situated beside it. It is here that Greg spoke of rumors stranger still. Rumors of ghosts lurking around the graveyard, and people residing in the church who perform ritual sacrifices on those unwitting people caught trespassing. Oh, and, and there's the hellhound which guards the grounds, Greg spoke, his voice low as if trying to be creepy. Don't you mean a black panther? Billy retorted. Greg glanced at him. No. He stammered. It, it's a hellhound, because it can vanish. No, dummy. It's a black panther. It's been possessed by a demon. Possessed? Ha! Greg snorted. 
That's just dumb. No one's ever heard of a demon panther. My cousin saw it when he was here last year, swear to God. It's a hellhound, which chases you back to the bridge, and if and he catches you, he takes you back to hell with it. Besides, your cousin is making shit up, because there ain't no panthers in Missouri. Oh, but there's hellhounds, Billy act shocked. Bruce closed his eyes and groaned inwardly as the boys argued on. At this point, he was no longer convinced he'd see anything at all tonight, as the hosts can't even get their story straight. He glanced sideways, seeing Todd reacting much the same as he and even Chad looked at a loss. Chad spoke up. Hey guys, come on, uh, what's the difference, really? So there's supposed to be a creature out there guarding the area. Don't let it catch you, right? Greg pointed his thumb at Billy. He'll see the difference if I'm right. He gave a hurt look to Billy and mumbled, fucker. Bruce thought he heard Billy respond, but it was barely audible. Then he spoke louder. Yes, but don't look it in the eyes. All right! Greg's barely contained excitement returned. Greg continued, eyes wide. Okay, so here's the deal, dudes. Don't look it in the eye, because if you do, you're going to die three days later. Bruce nodded his head, unsure which part confused him more. So this thing. Black Panther. Hellhound. Creature, Chad added. The creature. Bruce went with Chad's description. So I understand. To keep from being killed by it, you just don't look in its eyes. Greg scoffed, but Billy spoke up. No, it'll kill you the same as any predator. But if you can escape it, you need to avoid its eyes. Billy's eyes caught Bruce's in the mirror and held them. By locking eyes with it, you create a sort of killer bond with it. And three days later, he comes stalking your soul. Bruce felt the hairs on his arm raise and a tingling sensation on the back of his neck. He still didn't believe in these stories, but he had to admit Billy was much better at telling them than Greg. Moments later, the charger turned a corner on the gravel road, taking them into the surrounding woods, and the car's headlights illuminated the ancient bridge before them. Having expected something wood and rickety, Bruce was surprised to see a steel truss bridge. First impressions made him think this couldn't be the old bridge described, yet, as the car approached, the rust-covered steel became more questionable, not to mention barely there wood plank decking. Bruce spied a couple of corroded holes in the inclined end posts, and some of the bracing looked to be held together only by the buildup of rust. Billy turned off the headlights, but left the parking lights on so as not to leave them in complete darkness. Don't want to give us away, he said softly, just in case. He rolled his window down and craned his neck to listen outside. Greg did the same now, sitting back in his seat, facing forward. No one spoke, yet Billy's words echoed in Bruce's head as the car rolled cautiously off the gravel and onto the wooden planks that creaked under the strain. It was just wide enough for one vehicle. The shine of the full moon gave the structure a shadowy, skeletal look as they passed through. Occasionally, Bruce spied another gap in the steel where moonlight peeked through. The car continued moving at painstaking slow pace until, at last, it reached the other end. We're not stopping on the bridge, Todd said. No, not yet, Billy said, turning the wheel. We have to get turned around first. Greg turned to face the back again. Oh yeah, I forgot, he spoke softly. In the back of his mind, Bruce wondered why everyone was talking so quietly. Then again, it felt right to do so. Greg continued. Another part of the legend of this place <clears throat> is its ability to kill your car when you park it on the bridge. Like, when you turn it off and then come back to it later, it's dead. 
So you have to push it back to the start of the bridge where it will miraculously start again. <laughs> a guttural laugh escaped through his teeth. Why is that? Bruce spoke. Having finished turning the car around, Billy pulled back onto the bridge and shut it down. He turned to face Bruce. It's the power of this place, man. And it doesn't want you to leave once you've arrived. Happened to me the first time I came. I thought, maybe the guys who brought me pulled a park spark plug or removed a lead to the battery. But no. Worse yet, we were facing the other direction. He pointed his thumb behind Bruce. Everyone was freaking out when we tried to leave. Someone thought they saw the panth... <sighs> the creature. He gave Greg an eye roll. Greg smirked. Billy continued. And we had to push their van backwards off the bridge with someone who didn't know how to drive in reverse. Almost got it wedged between the railing twice. Bruce nodded his understanding, though he made a mental note to keep an eye on them. If he caught them doing something to the car, he'd know then that this was just a setup. Grabbing his keys from the ignition, Billy looked into the mirror, a sly smile on his lips. He mugs ready for this? 300 feet to the bridge. Almost an hour ago, Bruce had been unable to contain the excitement, excited smile on his face, thrilled from having arrived at a place known only as Nine Mile Bridge. He thought he was in for a good time, but now Bruce was no longer smiling. Instead, he moved his feet as fast as they could carry his terrified soul. Two hundred feet to the bridge. Avoiding the winding downhill road, the boys escaped into the woods in an unspoken agreement, choosing instead the treacherous downhill jaunt as the quickest way back to the bridge. Bruce raced faster than he could react and collided against the solid trunk of a tree for the second time already. This time he grunted hoarsely, feeling the wind partially knocked from his lungs, making him gasp for air, yet he refused to stop moving. Over his shoulder he heard the clumsy footfalls and snapping of brush, telling him that his friend Todd and Chad were still there. On the hill behind them, a roaring fire overtook the ancient chapel, casting obscure cha shadows before them and further frustrating Bruce's sight and depth perception trying to navigate the rough downhill terrain. Shit! Bruce exclaimed, wincing and nearly losing his balance as a low branch whipped his forehead, his glasses the only thing saving him from possibly losing an eye. Even without seeing the wound, he knew he'd been cut, feeling the warm fluid on his face creeping into his right eye and filling it with tears. Raising one hand out front to deflect more branches, he tried to wipe his eyes with the other hand as he ran when suddenly the ground leveled out. His body gave in to momentum, bending his torso over, his knees nearly touching his chest before reflexes uncoiled his legs, launching him into a skid across the gravel road on his hands and knees. Bruce felt a new panic rising as he searched the area around him for his glasses with bleeding, sediment-filled hands. A crash behind him drew his attention in time to see Todd burst from the trees near him, with Chad so close behind he ran into the burly farmer. I can't find my glasses, Bruce squeaked while accepting a hand from Todd to get back on his feet. Breathing too heavy to speak clearly, Todd tapped the side of his head and pointed to Bruce. Here, he gasped. As if knowing exactly what he meant, Bruce felt the weight of them dangling from his ear. Grabbing them, he breathed a sigh of relief that, although a little twisted, they were still intact. Adjusting them back on his face, he saw for the first time they'd come out of the woods near the bridge where Billy's hatchback charger was still waiting for them. Oh, God, Billy, Bruce thought as the boys raced to the car. 
Witnessing that creature attack Billy replayed in his head, and the shriek of his scream still echoed in his ears. But what was forever burned into Bruce's mind was the hollow crunch and deafening silence that followed after the beast had ceased Billy's screams forever. One hundred fifty feet to the end of the bridge. Here, Bruce, Chad sp spoke, bringing him back to the present. I found his keys, you know, up there. Chad thumbed behind them and climbed into his usual seat in the back. Todd was already on the other side, opening the passenger door. Let's go! <clears throat> Bruce shook his head to regain focus on their dire straits. Plenty of time to mourn later, I hope, he thought, and insert the, inserted the key into the ignition and turn. Nothing. Bruce slid the manual gear shift into neutral and popped the clutch with his foot, ensuring the car was ready to start. He turned the key again. Still nothing. No, no, no! Todd groaned and began pressing buttons on the dash one of which ejected the Guns N' Roses cassette they'd been jamming to earlier. Make sure the lights are off, he ordered. They are off, Bruce responded, and tried the key again in disbelief. Are you serious? It's fucking dead? Chad sounded panicked. No one answered him. No one needed to. They were all thinking the same thing. The car had died, just as the legend had said it would, meaning it won't start again until they push it to the other end. Come on, Bruce said releasing the emergency brake and pushed his door open. He stole a glimpse behind to make sure it was clear, then got out. His eyes were immediately drawn to the red glow in the night sky where he knew the church was still burning. Turning his attention back to the emergency at hand, Bruce positioned himself in the door jam on the driver's side of the car so he could reach the steering wheel if needed. Forgetting his raw hands, he winced when placing him against the cold steel and pulled them away for a quick inspection. In the full moonlight, he saw the multiple cuts in small sections where the skin had been peeled back. Thankfully, the bleeding had stopped, for the most part, and he decided this was no time to worry over it. Don't be such a pussy, Bruce thought, grabbing hold of the steel frame. The metal felt like it was made of ice against his palms, and he was suddenly aware of tiny pebbles tucked under the skin, which may as well have been spiked marbles for all the pain he felt shooting through his hands. He placed his right shoulder into the corner of the door jam to alleviate some of the pressure in his hands as he and his friends pushed the dead vehicle toward the end of Nine Mile Bridge. 130 feet to go. Holy shit! There's child prints all over the back window! came Chad's frantic voice, pushing from the back end. Still pushing, Bruce craned his neck, peeking at the windows nearest him and noticed for the first time what appeared to be small, child-sized hand and footprints now visible in the foggy glass. How can this be? Bruce thought, still not fully believing what his eyes were seeing. Yet in his mind, he could picture exactly what the legends of Nine Mile Bridge had spoken of. Ghostly beings, mostly children, trying to gain access back into the world of the living. But for Bruce, he couldn't help but to picture them disfigured and rotted like little zombie babies. Bruce shook his head in hopes to clear his eyes of what his fear was making him see. He felt the trickle of cold sweat running down his neck and along the spine. The cool October air did nothing to ease the heat under his denim jacket, but he knew the air had nothing to do with his trembling hands. Keep pushing, Bruce ordered. Ninety-five feet to go. Why did I agree to this? Somewhere behind Bruce there came a roar like nothing he had ever heard before. It reminded him of a lion he'd heard once at a zoo, but it was as if at the long end of a long tunnel. The hollow sound echoed down the valley, and Bruce felt the hairs on his neck stand on end. He stopped pushing to look back, 
finding that his friends had done the same. Up the hill where the graveyard was located, they could see the church flames burning even higher, making the appendage-like shadows of the forest seem as if they were reaching out in their direction along the road. From their midst, a pair of luminous emerald eyes materialized. Bruce felt hypnotized by them, unable to look away as he watched them as they glided downhill, passing behind trees yet never blinking, as if keeping their prey transfixed while it emerged onto the gravel road just beyond where they had been moments ago. The creature paused to sniff the road. A low growl rumbled from its throat like the sound of distant thunder. Reacting by instinct, Bruce ducked closer to the car and bit his lip so as not to cry out. During the events which had taken place at the church, he never got a good look at the beast which killed their friend, but now he watched in fearsome awe as it stood in the light of the full moon. It stood near four feet tall at the head, with a mane of wiry, raven-colored hair around the neck which framed the hairless gray face. There was no forehead Bruce could see, just a long muzzle which ended in a noseless snout, and teeth too large for its jaws, more like a small alligator than any hound. The body had an unnatural hourglass shape, with a barrel-shaped chest narrowing at the waist, then widening again at the hips. A slender mohawk of hair ran along the spine to the rear haunches, with a matching hair cluster at the end of the tail. Thickly muscled legs moved with immense paws, and as it turned, Bruce noticed a tuft of the mane on top of the head between its large ears, which seemed to stand on end as the beast looked around. It walked in circles, sniffing the ground, the glowing emerald eyes flashing this way and that, and Bruce realized it hadn't yet seen them, but it was searching. It's nearsighted, he thought, feeling a bit of relief, ran a scarred hand through his sweaty black mane mullet. Yet he knew it wouldn't be long before it picked up their scent. Damn it, man! Get the car off the bridge or we'll never get away, Todd said in a hoarse whisper, throwing his shoulder into the back of the car. Sixty feet to go. Bruce regripped the door jam with the windshield, pressing his weight into the momentum started by Todd. He's right, Bruce realized. Even if we left the car and ran, ran for the end of the bridge, and the supposed safety from the beast by having crossed that threshold, how much longer before the people at the church come after them? Without the car, we're still dead. As if answering their desperate cry for escape, the creature let out another terrifying roar. Bruce knew without looking, but a glance over his shoulder told him the beast had found their scent and was just stepping onto the bridge. Turning his attention back to the heavy task at hand, Bruce placed his left hand on the door, hoping to gain more leverage to push with. Instead, his efforts forced the driver's side door to swing wide open with a metal grinding creak, his balance thrown off by the sudden forward burst. Bruce stumbled to one knee before quickly regaining his footing. Shit! Bruce groaned, wishing he could rub the hot, stinging sensation growing in his knee, but he knew better, placing his hands back into the door jam. If the car had slowed at all, he couldn't tell, as Todd pushed his bulky farmer's body to its limits. Bruce could hear the results of his friend's efforts in their heavy breathing and grunts, but Chad was steadily breaking down in desperate tears. The terror, which was now chasing them all, pushed him past his limitations of rational behavior, and his sweaty hands slipped on the trunk as if unable to grasp hold and help. Forty-five feet to go. Please, God, let us make it. Bruce's glasses steamed with fear, but he dared not to wipe them, choosing instead to peer over them, just in time to turn the steering wheel and keep the car from riding up on the bridge railing. 
Another look behind showed Chad practically sprawled across the trunk, bawling by now, his voice rising in pitch each time the creature made a sound as it closed in on them at the halfway point. Todd shoved on in red-faced determination, sweat pouring from his head, and spittle flew from his mouth with each labored breath, yet at times Bruce thought he was lifting the vehicles back in entirely off the ground, seeming to hardly notice Chad's condition. Twenty-five feet. Bruce bowed his head to stare at the road in concentration, driving with his legs, shoving from the shoulders. A spot in his low back felt like it would cramp at any moment now. The car listed again, this time scraping the front fender before he cranked the wheel, and just before it could wedge itself against the railing, which would surely mean death to them all. Nineteen feet. Oh, everything is hurting. Refusing to look any more, Bruce could hear the closeness of the beast approaching them the thud of each padded claw, and the click of every claw on the wooden railings. In his mind, Bruce could feel its vile breath on his neck, the acrid flesh and blood odor invading his nostrils while the glowing soulless eyes bore into the back of his head. Thirteen feet. I wish I was home. Almost there, Todd wheezed. Nine feet. I love you, Mom and Dad. Bruce pulled the wheel one last time to keep the car on course in the middle of the bridge and spun on his heel. As his glasses slid off his nose, falling somewhere unknown, he ran to the back of the car and his friends, the beast almost on top of them. Five feet. So close! The car's nose passed over the edge of the bridge, and all three boys screamed in defiance as they were about to cross over themselves. The beast roared and leaped. Zero. Well, there you go. That's uh, that's the world debut of my story, Nine Mile Bridge, as read by me. I, I hope you guys enjoyed this show as as much as I had fun making it with my with my kids. Uh, hey, don't forget to rate us. Don't forget to like us and share with your friends. Thank you so much for checking in, and uh, be sure to come back next week. We've got another author, another story, and another sample chapter. Thanks a lot. Bye.